Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Um, Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. At the end of the reading, I would end it with, this is the word of the Lord, and you're pleased to respond by saying thanks be to God. Acts 11, 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught them great number and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending the gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. I'm really sorry for forgetting your name. She let me know about it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. Um, uh, so a few years ago, I was in Houston uh, with with Tosi and I were there, and I got a call from a friend that said, "Hey, there's this uh, church um, planter that is probably they're thinking of partnering with you." Now I've not told him this before, but this is actually what happened. I thought I said I asked, "Is it an established church?" They said, "No, it's a church planter." I said, they want to partner with us. And in my mind, I thought, you know, I know what's going to happen. They just want a church in Africa. They want to be praying together with, you know, I I don't really have time for that. But anyway, I will go, you know. And, yes, new to him. Anyway, so, um, you know, because Africans are always looking. When we say support, you know what we mean by that, you know. It's just... So, so, but when I went, and I remember it was the final of the, of... um, of the, and I, again, another reason I didn't want to go was the final of the Euro 2016. So France was playing Portugal. I mean, I vividly remember. So I was going to miss this match. I was going to go and talk to this person that wanted me to be sending him letters and postcards and all of those. So I, I, I see these two guys that are there. And in about, in about three minutes, I was, I was you know, I, I felt I repented. I felt, I was like, man, this, this is an extraordinary individual. Because it wasn't 
it wasn't all I thought about. And he, he just sounded like so generous. But the Nigerian kicked in to me again. I was like, somebody, no one is this nice. No one can be, nothing is for free. So it's like, what does this guy really want? So we finished the meeting. We took a picture together. I sent the message to the church. And then I went back to the place I was with my wife. like, ah, that guy, I don't know. I don't know. This seems too good to be true. It's two years since the partnership started. It still feels too good to be true. Uh, Jeremiah and I have become very good friends since then. I, I keep saying he's my closest friend in ministry. We speak regularly. We hold each other accountable. He's probably the person I tell my innermost secrets. Um, not like the innermost secrets are anything bad. You don't want to hear any of it. It's about a few of you in this church, you know, that are bothering me. Right? But he won't, he won't reveal it. Um, but also, uh, that is also the church. I've been there about two times. The church is just a wonderful church. Now, we started at, we were meant to start at the same time. We actually had the same schedule in terms of when we were going to plant, both September 2016. But you know, Niger now, we, we, if you said, come at 12 o'clock, what, what time would you come? Like some of you, like this service was meant to start at 10.45. What time did some of you come in? Uh -huh. So we're meant to start September 2016. They started September 2016. We kind of started January 2017. It's about the same thing, you know. It's like exactly acceptable. So, but they have been so generous to this church. They, they pray for this church regularly. They really care about this church. Um, Jeremiah came for this week, the pastor's conference. He ministered to us so powerfully. It's been such a blessing, and it's such an honor for me, and you know, something I've looked forward to for when he's eventually going to come and speak to us. He's brought the word to us in the first service, and he's going to bring the word to us now. But I want to ask him one or two questions quickly. Yeah, thank you. So your name is what again? Uh, my name is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, yeah. and I keep wondering, because Isaiah is probably the like, preeminent prophet, so what happened with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I've, I've given my parents a hard time. They, they named me Jeremiah, obviously, and I then became a preacher, and Jeremiah in the Bible was a preacher that preached for years and years and years, and nobody ever listened. <laughs> and so I hope my parents aren't prophetic. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. You've got a wife. I do. What's her name? Her name's Ashley. And then you've got children. Yes. How many? I've got three boys. Oh, no. Yeah, eight, six, and one. The house is... Full of energy. Notice eight, six, and one. Now this is this is again. Don't forget, we started. We we're meant to plant at the same time. We are similar age. We had we have two strong wives, you know, that keep us very humble. And then we had two boys, <laughs> two boys as well. So everything, you know, perfect picture. And then he went to go and have another boy. <laughs> now, come on. That's man. not going to happen to me. Yeah. I can assure you guys. Prophecy. No, 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 no yeah. prophesy. No, no prophesy. <laughs> All right, but he's a wonderful guy, and we're so happy to have you, Jeremiah. So thank you for bringing the word to us. Uh, thanks for Let's having applaud me. Yeah, Jeremiah. absolutely. So good to be here, and it's uh, equally true on my end. My relationship with Femi has been such a gift to me, such a dear friend and a partner in ministry. And, uh, you know, regularly at Seven Mile Road, we have these moments where we get to pray for our partners. And so on rotation, we're praying for different partners and uh, so our folks regularly see a picture of Femi and Tosin on our screen, and we pray for all of you as part of our service. And so we do that with regularity. Uh, I'll say I love looking at their picture. I think you guys are a handsome couple. Uh, but that's really not the picture of City Church. You know, this is. And so to finally be here and get to lay eyes on you for folks that I have prayed for and that we think about regularly, it is such a gift to be with you. 
there is a community of people that will pray, be praying for you again this morning. In about six hours, they'll be worshiping in Houston, and uh, they will be praying for you. There's people who love you, and, uh, and I'm certainly among them. We care a great deal for you. It's good to be with you. Uh, my time in Nigeria has been wonderful. I got to speak this week at the pastor's conference, which was really fun. Met some great leaders. I've eaten a lot of new food, <laughs> things that I had never heard of, and I've needed a little help on the menus, trying to get some definitions on things, and, but I've enjoyed that a great deal. One thing that caught me by surprise that I don't experience at home is these rolling blackouts, uh, not knowing when they're going to come. Uh, if Maybe I'm in the shower, and all of a sudden it's just very dark. <laughs> That may or may not be autobiographical from this week. Uh, I just need some warning, you know. Uh, but all that, all that being said, uh, I, have, I have loved my time here. And as, we, as we're reading this passage and thinking about the word that we're going to engage with this morning, you know, t- today's message I've given the title, Light Up the World, ironically enough. Uh, <laughs> But what I'm, really, what I'm really longing for us to see together in Acts chapter 11 is this, this invitation to be a community of faith that lights up the world in a way that it doesn't, doesn't come with rolling blackouts, but comes with unceasing, unflinching, bright and beautiful light that is radiating out from our communities. And I actually think that the church in Antioch is a picture for us of how that works. In essence, how we can arrange ourselves and how we can operate as a community, how you can operate as City Church in a way that really does light up the world. And in a a way, the the mental picture I get when I think about the Church of Antioch is, is this picture here. Now, this is in the United States, in the western United States. It's something called the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam is a an engineering feat. It was built from 1931 to 1936 to dam the Colorado River between Arizona and Nevada, two states in in the United States. And uh, what they did is they they built this enormous structure, and it's so compelling, so interesting that people actually travel from great distances. It's become a tourist site in the United States to see this dam. What I find so interesting about about the Hoover Dam is that it didn't create any power. It didn't create power. The power was already there in the Colorado River. It was, it was, as it were, laying dormant in the Colorado River that had been running through that area for as long as we know. But what happened was that the, the Hoover Dam was constructed in such a way that it was able to release that power in meaningful and new ways. The power that was in the Colorado River, when dammed and released, all of a sudden began to provide electricity for Nevada and Arizona and most of California. Interestingly, a geographical area that's a little bit larger than Nigeria, the entire country, came from the power that was laying dormant in the river, but that when constructed and dammed, began to light up the world. I think what we're going to see in Acts chapter 11 in the story of Antioch is what is required of a community to lay hold of the power that's already in us. If you've said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, and you have been adopted into the family of God as a result, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you as a community are a community that is full of the Spirit. He is coursing through you like a river. But oftentimes the fullness of His power lies dormant. It's not released in a way that brings light to the world in all the ways that are intended until certain realities become true of us as a community. I think as we pay attention to the church in Antioch, we will learn what some of those things look like. And if they become true of you, 
you will, in fact, light up the world. And so with that being said, I want to direct our attention back to the text and ask the question, what is it that allowed the church of Antioch to be a Hoover Dam church? I think the first thing that we will see is that everyone has a role to play. Everybody. Not just upfront leaders, not just pulpits, not just... Not, everyone has a role to play. Let's look at this in the text, starting in verse 19. The first couple of verses, would you look back with me? It says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Let's just pause there. A little bit of context in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus issued this statement that in many ways is the, serves as the outline for the entire book of Acts. He says the gospel is going to radiate from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He says, when my power comes upon you, this will happen. And the, the book of Acts traces along the way that the gospel is moving throughout the world in those radiating circles. Interestingly, in the early chapters of Acts, even though Jesus had sent his disciples to make disciples of all nations, they were largely residing in Jerusalem. But there was an event that catapulted them out. It was the persecution of Stephen, the first martyr and all of a sudden, Christians were under attack, and they began to move for their own safety to new areas. And as they did, they began to actually fulfill what Jesus had commanded them to do. The gospel is now radiating out, and we read in this verse that it's now even reached to Antioch, this large and influential city. And it says that as the people arrived in the middle of verse 19, it says they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What we just read about is the planting of the church at Antioch. What you may not be aware of is this. The church in Antioch is arguably the most influential church in the first hundred years of the, of the life of the church of Jesus Christ, and maybe even the first three or four hundred, depending on, on the way that you read church history. The planting of this church was incredibly influential for our history as Christians. This is the place that began to send the first missionaries and begin to plant churches all over the known world. This church continued to have influence in the ways that it raised and released leaders for generations to come. This church changed the course of church history. Now, who was it that planted this church? Did you hear it? Who planted the church at Antioch? If we'd been reading straight through the book of Acts, we would have been introduced to a lot of very prominent characters, Peter and John and Philip. We've met Saul, who's been transformed into Paul at this point. He's in the process. He's, he's met Jesus. and We've met all these characters. So which one of them planted the church at Antioch? Did you hear it? The text says, some of them. Some, so people were scattered because of persecution, and some of them were speaking about Jesus to the Hellenists also, and they started to believe and the church was planted. Literally, the church of Antioch was planted by a group of no names. They have been lost to history. We don't, we don't know who they are. They were a persecuted people on the run, and they didn't get to Antioch and think, well, we really need someone from back at central headquarters to show up so we can do some ministry. They didn't think that. They thought, obviously, this persecution is under God's sovereign control, and he's got us here for a purpose. We've got to keep talking about Jesus. And the most influential church in the first hundred years was planted as a result. 
The first thing that we recognize in a church that is, is like a Hoover Dam church is that everyone has a role to play. Everybody. No matter what your call in life, your job, your career, your, your address and where you live, you have been gifted with a ministry. Sir, remind me of your name. Kaide. Am I saying that right? Kaide. Kaide. No? Kaide. Okay. Got it. Do you know that you have a, a network of relationships different than everyone else in this room? No one else here lives at your address, goes to the places you go, has the same family members. It's uniquely yours sovereignly entrusted to you by God. It's not an accident. And in that place, you have a ministry to steward, a ministry that nobody else can do. Nobody else can do it. You have to do it. And it's actually, it's a Hoover Dam church that has not just one person or two person or three people, but everyone that starts to say, oh, I've got a role to play. God has designed his kingdom to come on earth through people. He doesn't do it through angelic beings that shout from the heavens. He doesn't do it by peeling back the sky and speaking with a booming voice. He wants men and women that will be submitted to him and say, send me. And every one of you has a role to play. You see, the reality is that, that the church is the people of God on the mission of God. It's not, it's not an hour or two on Sunday morning. It's not a sermon preached and song sung. It's the people of God on the mission of God. That's the church. And you know what happens when everyone starts to say, I think I do in fact have a role to play and they start to play it? It's almost like you can hear it. You know what it is? The winds of the spirit blow with vigor and velocity when the people of God are on the mission of God. He will move through you in ways you didn't know possible when you start to say yes. You know, the sadness, though, is that we can stall it out. We can stall out the movement of God in our midst. One of the ways that I am threatened regularly to stall it out, and in the church that I pastor, frequently there will be new people that come, and I'll, I'll always grab them at the door. Hey, how'd you hear about Seven Mile Road? And occasionally, every so often, someone will say, you know, we heard you were a great preacher, and we came to hear you. And in my heart, in that moment, Honestly, I'm thinking, yes, they're here for me. And simultaneously, a piece of my soul dies. Because in that moment, if I believe that lie, what is happening is I'm inviting the winds of the Spirit to quit blowing in our midst. Because if the church is about one gift that gets exercised while people watch, it's not the church. The church is the people of God on the mission of God. Everyone's saying, I have a role to play. We can stall out the movement of God by beginning to define the church in other ways. If it's just a group of people that get together and have really good theology, and we study the Bible a lot, and we've got all the right answers, but we're not the people of God on the mission of God, we're going to miss the winds of the Spirit. We're going to miss what He's willing and ready to do in our midst. So what does your network of relationships look like? What has God sovereignly entrusted to you and to no one else? What would it look like to begin to say before God, here I am, send me, I have a role to play to both embody and declare this gospel with regularity. The first mark of a Hoover Dam church is that everyone has a role to play, everybody. But that's not it. 
That's the start of the electricity beginning to build, but that's not the fullness of it. Let's continue to look, because the second thing that we're going to see in the text is this. Grace is visible. Grace is something you can see with your eyes, according to the author Luke. Look back with me in verse 22 and verse 23a. It says this. The report of this... This is the great number of people in Antioch coming to faith. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, literally in the Greek. It's just, he didn't see the the work that grace was doing. The the literal Greek just says he saw grace when when he arrived, and he was glad. What an interesting statement chosen by the author Luke. He says that when Barnabas arrives, he saw grace, which is such an interesting thing because grace is a, a theological concept, right? It's something that we discuss. It's a principle, the gospel of the grace of Jesus. One simple definition that I've come to think of uh, that I've heard many times over to remember grace, it's the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. You guys heard this before? It's a helpful reminder of what is grace really. God is in such loving pursuit of humanity that even in our sin, even though we have forfeited the right to be loved and pursued by God, he still does. And in Christ, in Christ's death and resurrection, he pours out his favor and kindness, both in this life and in the life to come. Grace. That's something that we may be able to define. We may even be able to say God's riches at Christ's expense. We get the answer right on the test. We know the principle. We've heard it preached. We've taught it ourselves. How is it that Luke says it's something that he could see? How do you see grace? I think there's a few hints in the text. I think the first is this. There are a lot of people whose lives are being changed. There are a lot of people. In verse 21, in verse 24, and in 26, in this passage, it makes the point, a great many people. Luke says it three different times because I think he wants us not to miss the point. There's a movement of the people that's happening. A great many people. The first way that we begin to experience grace becoming visible is we see lives being changed, lots of them. And it's not just any lives. One thing that's worthy of note is that Antioch was a big city. At that time, 500,000 people That was a very sizable city at that time in history, and it was known for its sexual immorality. They played it kind of fast and loose in Antioch. Uh, In the United States, there's a city, Las Vegas, that's kind of crazy, and everybody says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We've heard this phrase. Uh, Well, I think back then they would have said, what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. That's the kind of city we're talking about. So there's lots of people coming to the Lord, but not just anybody. Folks from Antioch. They're coming to the Lord, and when Barnabas shows up, he says, I can see it. I can see God's kindness to people who forfeited the right to be loved by him. Just recently, over the last year plus, I've had the great privilege of walking with a friend of mine named Jose. Jose was addicted to crack cocaine, and he was working in an auto shop, working on fixing cars. And uh, he began to hear about the truth of Jesus. And slowly the Lord graciously opened his ears and his heart, and he came to trust Jesus with the whole of his life. Turning from a life of addiction in his past, he started to get, get uh, care and help and health, and he's been growing in the Lord. Interestingly, after Jose's conversion of moving from death to life, he realized that I'm living with this woman 
We've been living together for 13 years, and he began, he began to be convicted, and he, he told her, we have to get married. And so she agreed. She said, that sounds good to me, and they got married just after that. And interestingly, she was really loving some of the changes that she saw in Jose, but she said, I want nothing to do with this God thing you've got going on. And so Jose became increasingly concerned that now his wife, who he loved dearly, was not interested in walking with Jesus. So he's a part of a Bible study in the auto shop where he was working. Some of the other men were starting to participate, and he was sharing with us. He was saying, you know, I, I so badly want Gabby to hear and respond, but every time I start talking about Jesus, she says, I don't want to hear that. Stop, stop talking about that. And so some of the guys were saying, you know, Jose, what if you quit talking about it and you just go home and start serving her? Like, start serving her the way that Jesus loves the church. Lay your life down for a day after day after day. Let's start there. And so Jose said, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give that a try. I'm going to go home and just love her. And so he goes home and starts doing that. And interestingly, about six or eight weeks later, I was getting up to preach, and I turned, and there was Jose, and there was a woman sitting next to him in worship. I thought, oh, that's strange. And I went over and introduced myself. She said, hi, I'm Gabby. I said, ah, good to see you, Gabby. Yeah. And she came back the next week, and she came back the next week, and she came back the next week. And a couple of months later, she came up to me after the service, and she said, you know this Jesus that you talk about? I love him. I love him. And, uh, and she beautifully, in our church, this was, we were having this conversation just a couple of weeks before I came here, and in our church, the person that God has used to bring you to the Lord is the one who will then baptize you. And so in a few weeks' time, at one of our Sunday gathering worship services, Jose will, will baptize his bride declaring you have been buried with Christ in his, in his death and you've been raised up to walk in newness of life. You know, that is a visible grace. You, you start to see it. You go, oh, God has love and affection and power at work in the lives of people that maybe we would have defined as too far gone, outside of the reach of God's hand and his grace. You see, grace is the banana peel that religion slips on constantly. Because good religious people who get dressed up on Sunday mornings and look lovely, which you all do, by the way, you look lovely. And quite frankly, I'm the most prone to this. I'm the professionally religious one, the one that Jesus saved his harshest words for, the professionally religious. And so beware if you stand in this place. And the reality is that the danger of being religious is that we start to look at other people who don't think like we think, aren't living like we live, or addicted to things that we're not addicted to, that we can easily start thinking, oh, those people who do those sorts of things. That language, those people who do those things, invites the winds of the Spirit to quit blowing. When we think like that, and when we talk like that, We are distancing ourselves from Jesus' mission because he leaves the 99 to chase the one. He he didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And if we are not aligned with that mission, just trust this. You will cease to experience the winds of the Spirit and power as a community. You see, a Hoover Dam church recognizes that everyone has a role to play. And grace becomes visible because we are on his mission with him. But that's not it. Those are the first two marks, but as we continue to look in the text, as we continue to to feel the dam being constructed, that if we as a community say everyone has a role to play and grace begins to be visible, the third mark is this. The leadership is on point. 
The leadership is doing what is required of them. And so as we look at this, this is a, an invitation for all those in any sort of leadership here at City Church to be called to account and also for the community to know that this is what we are calling our leaders to. So what does it mean for the leadership to be on point in Antioch and in our churches? Let's look at verses 20, 23b through 26. So picking up in the half, second half of 23, it says this. When Barnabas had arrived, it says he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. That's incidentally a great many on top of the great many that had already believed. And then there's a great many more coming in verse 26. Verse 25, it says this, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what we have is that the word travels back to Jerusalem, that there's this movement happening in Antioch. It must have been exciting to receive this news in Jerusalem that those who have been on the run for persecution are actually still proclaiming the gospel and God's moving in them. And they decide we need to send a representative to tend to them and care for them. So they send Barnabas. Did you know that Barnabas is not his real name? Did you know that? Anybody know Barnabas' real name for the gold star this morning? Anybody know? His real name? Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, Acts chapter 4, there's a man named Joseph, and he's so generous and so committed to the mission of God that he sells his personal property and he gives all the money to the church. And the apostles are so touched by his commitment to the mission and the way that he continues to interact in the community that they say, you know what? We're not going to call you Joseph anymore. We're going to call you son of encouragement, Barnabas. And so his name from that point on, his name gets forgotten in the book of Acts. He never gets called Joseph again. He's only the encourager every time you meet him. And so he shows up in Antioch. And the verse there says that when Barnabas showed up, he exhorted them in the middle of 23. It says he exhorted them. But the actual root word is the same as the root for Barnabas. It's the word for encouragement. So Barnabas showed up and he just started Barnabasing. It's just all he knows how to do. He's, he starts encouraging, going, wow, look at, look at what God's doing in you and the ways he's using you. I'm so encouraged and thankful for you. He's encouraging and blessing. And it says that he's helping them to, to remain steadfast in their faith. In essence, he's looking at a lot of new Christians and saying there's going to be days where you don't feel it anymore. There's going to be days that are hard and it feels like the sun has grown hot and you've endured real suffering. And what he's doing is he's trying to lay foundation. He's encouraging them and teaching them and saying, here's what it looks like to remain faithful for the long haul. But you know what's so interesting about Barnabas? He's so full of the Spirit and so humble that he doesn't, he doesn't make it about himself. And in fact, real quickly, as all these people are coming to the Lord, it's like he recognizes, I need help. And in fact, I don't know that I have the gifts that this church needs. And so all of a sudden he remembers this guy that he met a while back named Saul, the greatest theologian on the planet who's been trained and knows the Bible backwards and forwards and who has met the the resurrected King Jesus in the flesh. And he goes, that's who we need. But Saul has been, at this point, he's been kind of cast aside by everybody. Everybody rejected him. His old Jewish friends, the, the, the church, nobody was, he was kind of the untouchable early on. But Barnabas went and found him in his hometown. And he said, it's time for you to come. Can you imagine that discussion? The recruiting discussion as Barnabas comes to his hometown. He says, Paul, it's time to get in the game. There's a church and it's burgeoning and God's on the move and you need to come pastor it. You know what the text says there? It says they stayed with them for a year teaching. 
Can you imagine that? Talk about that head pastor teaching pastor combination. Barnabas, the most encouraging and gracious man who's old and probably white haired at this point, old enough to be Paul's dad, pardon me, old enough to be um, Paul's dad. Yeah, Barnabas. And it's like he's got his arm around the community while Paul is just teaching theology to them and building them up. A really strong combination. Interestingly, in two chapters, you know what the elders will do? When praying and fasting, they'll send both of them away because they continue to be open-handed. You see, the leadership in Antioch recognized something. It is not the leader's job to do the work of ministry. It is the leader's job, as marked out in the life of the community, to equip the saints for ministry. And Barnabas and Paul lived like that, and Antioch believed it. All of a sudden, it was, it was actually about them pushing the ministry into the hands and the hearts of the people so that they were a part of it, that the leaders were a part of this reality that everyone has a role to play. And the leaders were playing their role well. You see, a Hoover Dam church is a starfish. It's not a spider. It's a starfish, not a spider. Let me explain. You know, a spider has uh, one head and eight legs, right? And all of the information that causes the legs to work together and for the spider to move around, it's all in that head. And if you remove the head from a spider, do you know what happens? It, uh, it dies, right? It has no more life in it. It can't continue to move. It's done for. But a starfish, if you were to take a starfish and you were to cut it in half, do you know what would happen? It would reproduce. It would become two starfish. The reason, there's not one central headquarter for all of the information and wisdom and direction. Every bit of that starfish carries the stamp of starfishness, right? That, that actually, it will just continue to reproduce. This is the picture for a church on mission. It was never about the leader that's leading. They are just equipping the saints for ministry. And the idea is that if we slice it down the middle, if we go this way, if we plant a church and send some people over there, we just continue to, to grow and to move because we all carry the DNA stamped on our heart. Have you said yes to the mission of God in that way, that it's running through your veins, that you say, I'm in for this thing. I'm in for the kingdom of God coming in this city as it is in heaven, which requires that we don't operate like a spider, but we operate like a starfish. Well, our first three marks of the Hoover Dam Church. Everyone has a role to play. Grace is visible, and the leaders are playing their role. But finally, that's not the conclusion. Finally, the last few verses are going to show us the last piece, and it's this. A Hoover Dam Church is marked by open-handed generosity. Now, in the, picking up in verse 27, it says this. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the, elder, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, can you catch this picture? This church is growing. They're experiencing all of this life. Prophets come from Jerusalem, and Agabus stands and speaks under the inspiration of the Spirit and says there's a famine coming. The community, by faith, believes it to be true. And did you hear what they did in response? They got a strategy team together, and they said, we need to figure out how to build storehouses so we don't go hungry. Is that what it said? No, that's not, that's not what it said. Isn't it interesting? It's baffling to me. This church hears this news. 
there is a great famine coming over all the land. And the first thing they do is they say, how are we going to take care of all the brothers everywhere else? Not one thought about protecting or preserving themselves. And then it says everyone according to his ability or her ability, everyone according to their ability decided, how can I give towards that? And they took up an offering, an offering of open-handed generosity made at the individual level. And then at the communal level, they didn't pool it for themselves, even though everyone had given freely of their, of their own resource, now that the church has the money, they say, now they took that money to another place and made sure that those people had what they need. Open-handed generosity at the individual and the corporate level. Now hear this. One of the things that will derail the movement of God in a Hoover Dam church is grasping. If we grasp, if we grasp at our dollars, or our time, or our homes, or our jobs as if they're mine, uniquely mine. We will rob ourselves of getting to be a part of what God is doing in power. What he is saying is, would you trust me enough to open wide your hands and your hearts and say, none of it was ever mine. Your money is not yours. Your house is not yours. One that I, where I feel my grasping is my kids are not mine. Everything that I think, I just want to hold tightly to it and make sure it's all okay. And God's going, would you just open your hands and trust me with everything you've got? If you will adopt that posture, that's where the dam breaks open in power. That's where now all of a sudden every do undoing their job, grace being visible, leaders playing their role. And now we all together open our hands and say, here we are, God. When we take that posture, we light up the world. This church in Antioch began to radiate out. And the truth is, City Church will radiate out. You will light up Lagos and light up Nigeria and be a part of partnering with great folks like city to city to, to light up this continent to the glory of God. God's inviting you into that. And may I just say to you, oh, my, my longing for each of you as an individual is that you would not miss the great adventure that God has for you. What sadness to build a life that is all about this world. That we, we think if I can just get it all to look just the way that I want for these few words, few years, when the scriptures say your life is a breath, it's a mist, it's going to be gone before you know it. And what God's saying is you can actually participate in eternity, but it looks like this. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the adventure. Don't miss the life and the joy and the freedom of participating in what God is doing. And so let us be a people where everyone says we have a role to play. Grace is at work in us in such rich ways as we remind ourselves daily of the gospel. We, we follow leaders that are equipping us as we do the work of the ministry, and we do it with open hands. As you do, you will light up the world. Amen. Can I pray for us? So gracious God and Father, we thank you that your word is alive and active and sharp and that it divides bone and marrow. I pray that you would have your way with us today, that the word that has been preached would find purchase in our souls. Would you just take a moment, even in the silence, would you just ask God, just thinking through what you've just heard, would you ask him where it is that you particularly need to pay attention to that word and maybe even where you need to repent in response to that word? Would you do that in the silence with God?
God, would you, would you have your way in us? Holy Spirit, would you deal with our hearts and our minds, reshaping the way that we order our steps? Forgive us, God. Forgive me where I grasp, where I grasp at glory and I grasp at dollars and I grasp at comfort. Would you kill that in my soul? For each of us where we are resisting the great invitation to participate in your mission in the world, would you, would you draw us into that place where with confidence we say yes to Jesus in a whole new way? Yes to his mission. Yes to stewarding the relationships you've entrusted to us with, with greater boldness and greater prayer. God, I pray your richest blessings over City Church. I thank you for what you have already done, and I thank you for what you will do. God, we look forward with anticipation to the ways that the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to radiate out from this place, becoming visible in new and beautiful ways. We thank you in advance for it. We bless you, God. We thank you. We pray it in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen. for listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.